cowboy appeared before St. Peter at the pearly gates. St. Peter asked the cowboy, have you ever done anything of particular merit? The cowboy says, well, I can think of one thing. On a trip to the Badlands of South Dakota, I came upon a gang of bikers who were threatening a young woman. I told them to leave her alone, but they wouldn't listen. So I walked up to the biggest, baddest, most tattooed biker and smacked him right in the face, kicked his bike over, ripped out his nose ring and threw it on the ground. I yelled, back off or I'll kick the shit out of every last one of you. St. Peter was impressed and asked, when did this happen? The cowboy says, well, a couple minutes ago. This is Otis Gibbs, and you're listening to Thanks for Giving a Damn. I'm sitting here in my living room in East Nashville. This is a personal journal. This is a bit of an experiment. I like to say right up front that I haven't the slightest idea what I'm doing, but I decided to do it anyway. This show was founded with the idea that there are only two people in art that matter. There's a creative individual and the person experiencing it, and everything else is an artificial filter. This is a way for me to share things with you guys without any filters whatsoever. My guest this week is John Lomax III. John's a historian, an author, a journalist, a publisher, a producer, a photographer, and he was also the manager of Towns Van Zandt. We had a great response for last week's episode where John talked about his family and their impact on music history. If you haven't heard that yet, I strongly urge you to go back and listen to it. John invited me into his home here in Nashville we sat down and we talked about a lot of stuff, but he shared a whole bunch of Towns Van Zant stories. And I know we have a lot of Towns fans that are listening, so this one's for you. Here's John Lomax III. I had a buddy named Caddo Parrish Stuttered III. This photograph is up on the wall over there. He looks like Bill Haley with a cowlick. He came in one day and said, oh, we got to go to the 11th door and see this guy I found Towns. I said, well, why? And he said, oh, he's really good. You'll love him. Come on. So he dragged me over to this place, which was a folk club on 11th and Red River in Austin, where I was going to college. And it was one of those places where you could go in upstairs and hang around the bar, and then if you wanted to hear the music, you had to pay a cover, and you went downstairs into something about the size of this room. You could probably fit two of the 11th door showrooms inside the Bluebird. Maybe 40 people could have were there, or maybe 40 people if it was full and it wasn't. But I was just floored. I mean, I had grown up with folk music, so I wasn't a stranger to that or to seeing people sing, uh, which I had been seeing my whole life because the Folklore Society for many years met in the house and they would basically have a five-minute business meeting and then pass the guitars and start singing. Everyone got their shot, no matter how wretched you were or weren't. <laughs> you got your song. It was what they call a guitar pull today. Was uh, 
was uh, going on. So I had seen a lot of people perform and, and was going out to hear music a lot. But I was just t totally floored. I thought Towns was just as, as good as, or if not equal to Bob Dylan or anyone. Uh, he'd had one album, I think, out at that time. And uh, that, in, that in and of itself was a real merit badge because not many of the people around that circuit had records actually out then. But he had this album out, and it had a lot of the songs that we've grown to know and love for the sake of the song was the title of the album, and that song <clears throat> has endured as well. But I was just completely floored. And so Cato and I hung around afterward and went out and chatted with him, and he was real friendly and flattered that we liked the music. And I don't know if he knew anything about my family or not, but whether he did or didn't, he was very easygoing, and we kind of struck up a little friendship, and we'd go see him when he'd come around again. And then uh, I think that next summer when I went home, I found out, oddly enough, that he and his first wife lived a block away from me in West University Place in Houston. And we saw each other a few times here and there, and nothing really... Uh, came out of it until uh, 76, after I'd moved up here. I had kept sort of tabs on him. He was living out in Colorado, but at that time he had fallen off his horse and broke his arm, broke his left arm. So he wasn't playing guitar. He didn't have a booking agent anymore. He'd lost the record deal by then because the record company actually had collapsed. And so he was pretty much at a low ebb. He was living, I was told, in a cabin out in the woods with no electricity and no running water or anything and couldn't gig and had no way to get gigs. And so I told him to move on over to Nashville and that, you know, between me and Guy Clark, who was his buddy from back in the day, that we'd help see if we couldn't get something going for him. And so he moved here, and then I started managing him in 76 and put a little ad in Rolling Stone in the classifieds, a little three-line ad. It said something like, uh, world's greatest songwriter, call the, join the Towns Van Zant fan club, send $5 to this P.O. box. <laughs> and I just, I didn't think much of it, but we got over 100 uh responses which i just thought was staggering I mean, it was rolling stone it wasn't sing out and the other thing that astonished me was the level of intelligence of these people that responded i was used to at the time getting country fan letters which were you know sort of like crayolas on big chief tablets and Half the letters were turned the wrong way, and the word usage was pitiful. And if you were an English teacher, you would have wadded it up and thrown it away. But, but these were letters that were heartfelt. They were, in many cases, handwritten in this gorgeous script, and that would tell in great detail how much Towns' music meant to these people, and how some of them said it had saved their lives. They were fixing to kill themselves, and they listened to his record and it saved their life and all that. And I was just stunned that that these were, that he was reaching a, a, a really intelligent audience 
on a lot of a deeper level than most artists who were you know just regarded as background these were people that were listening and hanging on every word so we built a fan club and we tried to uh get the career turned around i got him set up with a booking agent here and uh he started his arm healed up and he got some shows and one of those shows was when Emmy Lou and uh, Paul, I guess she was. No, Emmy Lou and Brian, I guess she was with Brian Ahern then. Saw him and heard Poncho and Lefty, and when she recorded Poncho and Lefty, it opened a lot of doors. We were able to get the label to reissue five of the first six records, and then he did another album, a new one, Flying Shoes. I helped get him into that movie. Heartworn Highways, and then uh, the label that had been sitting on live at the Old Quarter for five years finally decided to put it out, and so it came out, and that really is the definitive Towns album to this day. I mean, not only is it a double live solo record, but it's got something like 40 songs and just about every one of the great ones. But it sat and languished five years, uh, partly because of the label difficulty and partly because no one has ever known what the early album sold because it was with a label that didn't believe in actually reporting anything to anyone. They just put the money in their pocket. No, that was in Texas, the part where he's... Uh, doing the rabbit hole and all that. that Were you was around in, for any of that? A little of it, yeah. That was in Clarksville, which was an area of Austin, which at the time was somewhat like East Nashville was 20 years ago or something. It was kind of lower-class whites and not uh, you know, a lot of uh, really run-down part of Austin. Of Austin. And uh, he was living in a little little house there and that was where all that was filmed uncle seymour the fellow the black guy that that he sang waiting around to die to uncle seymour lived around the corner and he had barbecues out at his place and everyone got along great uncle seymour loved having barbecues and all that was hippie chicks running around without bras and, <laughs> <laughs> and uh so he he was just sort of one of the gang and was that staged at all, or no. was that spontaneous? No, that was just town sitting around. Well, I mean, it was staged in the sense of, hey, why don't you get some people and have a barbecue, and we'll film it. It seems like such a beautiful, genuine moment. Yeah, no, the, the moment was natural. I was there when it happened, and I was just, it, it, boy, you could hear a pin drop in the dirt. It was so magical in terms of, and Seymour at the time knew he had, I don't know what it was that killed him, but he knew he was dying. And he knew it wasn't far, and uh, that he always loved that song, and so Towns sang it for him. And but there were other songs sung, and there was other stuff. And I don't know. They supposedly there's another version of Heartworn Highways coming back out with additional footage, but um, I haven't seen any of the other footage. But they shot a lot more stuff. And but yeah, that was just one of those things where. Ooh, it wasn't like they did. Okay, do it again, and this time, Seymour, see if you can cry. <laughs> <laughs> right. It was that was on the fly. Bam. I saw a picture that you took of Graham Parsons backstage online, mm -hmm. 
Is there a story behind that? Well, the story was that was the tour, the Fallen Angels tour. And at the time when they came through Houston, the club was known as Liberty Hall. And Liberty Hall had this situation where the, they would book acts in for the weekend. And you'd come in there and they'd play one show Thursday, two Friday, two Saturday, and one Sunday. Yeah, six shows in all. If they were, and the room held maybe 400 people. So they booked Graham and them in, and I was writing for the underground paper, which today we call alternative newspapers. Uh, I was writing for the underground paper and also doing the press releases for the club. So I made most of the shows and, and had heard Graham's album and Emmy and just thought, these guys, this is fabulous, wonderful stuff. And uh, so went to the, uh, the gig and enjoyed it, took some pictures of the show that didn't turn out very good. But then afterward, everyone hung out up above the uh, stage. There was this huge room, the width of the club, where it was the green room, so to speak. And they had a dumb waiter down to the kitchen where you could have your drinks hauled up. Everybody hung out there, including uh, that was where I met uh, the Road Mangler the first time, and Jack Nietzsche was hanging out with them for some reason. Uh, the guy that I had gone with, Rocky Hill, was the blonde guy that was playing guitar backstage that you see the pictures of him and Graham. So I just started shooting pictures, and I wish I'd have shot a lot more. And the next morning, Graham and Towns and I and somebody had breakfast at the Plaza Hotel. They were staying at this really odd place, which was mainly an old folks high-rise hotel, but somehow they were trying to get into the touring music business. And They had put up these guys. It was just really strange, not where you'd expect to find a touring band. And they were touring in a bus, which at the time was really unusual. Uh, the big acts would fly in and out, and everyone else would be in station wagons or RVs, but they had a bus. And I'd love it if I had a tape of the chatter at breakfast, but Graham and Towns hit it off right away. and They hung out together then? Or? A little bit. Just uh, then, then, and I think, I think drugs may have had something to do with it, too. I think he was looking to score, maybe. Graham was looking to score, yeah, so he uh, found Towns. Yeah, or maybe by the other way around. I don't know. <laughs> Probably Graham because he would be traveling and not have a chance to keep up with the normal dealers. But I'm not sure even why we went and had breakfast, but it was really interesting. And uh, Towns was, he was a big fan of Graham's, and, and I guess that may have been the first time he saw Amy Lou. Did Phil Kaufman hang out with Towns also then? No, no, Phil was out with them. Uh, you know, he was, he was. Uh, I hung out with Phil yesterday. So yeah. I would have asked him about this if I didn't know. But. Yeah, well, he may remember more about the that breakfast. I can't remember if he was in on it or not. Probably was. Which was where the, uh, the live album, of course, was done. But the old quarter also was where I saw Towns sit in with the Allman Brothers. And that was one of the highlights of my life, to hear him with that full band going in a room about this size. Well, whose songs were they playing? 
I remember the only one I remember was uh, Stormy Monday. I don't know if he sang more than one song or not, but I just remember him singing Stormy Monday with him, and I was sitting as close as you are to me with one Dwayne here and the other guy, what's his name, the other guitar player, Dickie, and Greg over here. With, with a, I think they didn't, I don't think they had an organ, but he had a piano and uh, the two drummers going and the bass player just staggering. They had ended a tour in Houston and they, had kind of fallen in with the right crowd that had drugs and girls and Dale who owned the old quarter had a bunch of room upstairs where they could all crash out and they just decided to set them up one night and play and did they know about towns ahead of time were they fans I don't know I really don't probably because you know by then it was this would have been 70 71 so he would have had all the the first six records out and uh those guys were, were digging pretty deep on stuff too so. yeah yeah it could be they could probably they might have run across him but he was really under the radar because of the label never never did anything to help him a couple of times they had the internet i mean they had national distribution but they didn't get the parent company to do anything either so didn't really matter because they couldn't get the records in the stores. They never promoted him, so they never got any airplay. It was just it was all about Kevin Eggers making some money. Sad guy had great taste, but what's that? What's that saying? Uh, he'd climb a tree for a dishonest dime and leave an honest dollar on the ground. <laughs> just. <laughs> That was Kevin. Still is, I guess. <clears throat> so I heard stories of Towns playing at Douglas Corner, maybe getting drunk and telling a bunch of jokes and deciding he should go across the street to Zany's and do stand-up comedy <laughs> and bomb terribly. Is that true, or have you ever witnessed that? I never witnessed it. I saw him play at Douglas Corner, though, a couple of times. and When he was on and... I mean, he could stop the room. It literally, uh, people, you could hardly hear anyone breathe. He, when he was on and doing his thing, he was just mesmerizing. But uh, unfortunately, he, if he got to drinking, things got out of hand in a hurry. And uh, I saw him, at, I think, two different nights at Douglas Corner. No, one night at 12th and Porter, and he was kind of out of it. But then I saw it. No, no, he was fine then. And then I saw him at Douglas Corner twice. And once he just was gone to the alcohol. And once, he, I mean, he had the room in the palm of his hand and he could have kept him there three hours. I think he played 40 songs or so. And when, you know, when he wanted to and stayed off the sauce, he could just, it was as good as anyone I've ever seen in terms of just having... Great songs, interesting patter, and people don't give him credit. He was a good, solid guitar player. wasn't flashy at all, but it was all right there, just right where it ought to be. I mean, he wouldn't be going on any silly runs or anything. It was just play it and play it and sing it and go on to the next one. Uh, I saw a couple of photos that you took of him and. And uh, Lightning Hopkins are beautiful photos. Mm -hmm. Did they get along pretty well? Oh yeah, yeah. He well, he could tell Towns was a 
a good artist. And so he appreciated that Towns was really interested in him and his music. And Towns always said that it was Hank Williams, Dylan, and Lightning were his three influences. You can hear all of them in there pretty easily, especially when <clears throat> when Towns would do something like Hello Central. I mean, he'd cover Lightning. He didn't cover many people, but he covered Lightning. And uh, I think Lightning really appreciated the fact that Towns, Towns obviously had studied his music, and Towns told me he would listen to those records over and over and over and over, trying to you know, cop the licks. <laughs> it's deceptively simple, lightning stuff, but it really isn't that simple. Uh, but yeah, they got a lot of fine. I got ousted as manager because I kept asking for things like contracts and royalty statements and little minor details <laughs> such as that and like who's the publisher and where's the contract and what songs and by the way how about a royalty statement or a recording contract or something that you know and uh so the guy running the label kevin eggers got towns drunk and had him sign something which towns would do for a fifth of whiskey and 50 bucks and uh, I was escorted out the door and paid off, and a friend of Kevin's took over as manager, Lamar Fike. And uh, I don't think he ever did have another manager that actually cared about him after after that point. So I don't know if he wanted one. Towns was a strange guy. He was not uh, interested in pursuing art for the sake of fame and fortune. He was more of a driven artist that pursued it because he had this drive to write these songs. And here they are. I mean, they're still with us. So I counted once. There's only about 90 uh, that he wrote, but almost every one of them sticks like glue. And really, the the first five years, I guess, First six albums were where just about every one of the great songs can be found. He wrote a few really interesting good ones over the years after that, but the bulk of the writing, the really stunning drop-dead songs were, were in the early days. Oh, and we put out the book. I uh, talked my brother into putting out a book about towns that we... The vision was I wanted people to see that his words would stand up on paper where regardless of being songs, that they worked as poetry. So we put out a book that had 12 of the songs that Towns chose, and then we had the music sheet, the lead sheet on one side with the music, and then the lyrics on the other side of the page, and then Towns uh, had some little comment about the songs, and we dropped in some original photos, and we got a discography together, and a a bio and I wrote a foreword and there was a book and it's you can find it now on uh, various places for ridiculous prices but there was a small pressing and then uh, my brother passed away and he gave it willed it to a friend of his and then she passed away and she gave it to somebody and I 
track them down and finally, I guess in the 90s, bought up the last few that they had and over the years given most of them away. I think we've got three or four left. I think the last time I saw him was a Douglas Corner show where he really, one of the really good ones. Um, the time before that I saw him was really disturbing. It was out at uh, the house that he and he was living in. I think that I think they had either bought it from Guy and Susanna or they had loaned it to him out in Mount Juliet. He had come in off the road and he was just being he was drunk and he was being abusive to his son and it was just embarrassing to everyone. He was just being so mean and and nasty to his son and. Uh, but then the last time, I guess, was Douglas Corner, and he did a fine show. It was really, really good. And then uh, Bob Orman called me to tell me he had passed away. I knew he had come back here from recording. They were in Memphis trying to record, and the guy that was one of the... Uh, Sonic Youth? Yeah. I can't remember. Shelley? Is that the name of the particular one? One of them, the drummer, I guess was trying to make a record and Towns had a broken rib or broken something and he kept saying, man, you know, why don't we do this when you're not in pain? And so he went back and went into the hospital and then came back and went home and they told me that his ex, or Janine was the ex, but she wound up being the executor. She told me that she had sent her younger one of the younger kids in there to check on him. He had come home from the hospital and from surgery and was healing up there at the house that she's in out in Smyrna. And uh, I don't know if it was Katie Bell or Will. I think it was Will. Went to see how he was getting along and said, you need anything, Dad? And he said, no, thanks, son. I'm feeling fine. Two minutes later, he was dead. So at least he had some good last words. Uh, and Orman called me, I guess. He was, at the time, uh, the beat writer for the Tennessean, so he would have seen the wire thing when it came across. And he knew that I had worked with him, and so he called to tell me the, the bad news. I can't say I was surprised, and I was kind of surprised that he had made it as long as he did, considering the rough-and-tumble life. But he always said he was going to die at 52, the same age as his dad. And he did. Did you make it to his funeral? Oh, yeah. Yeah. It was at the uh, church there on 16th. Now, they may have had other services, but they had one here on. Uh, they were going to have it at the church over there in Centennial Park, right on the corner. Uh, it was not a church, actually a funeral home. And the funeral home called the family and said, look, this, we, it's, we're not big enough. You need to put this somewhere else. And they put it in the church there right at, in the middle of Music Row. As you're coming down 16th and you go through the Koinona and all that little settlement in the middle of 16th and I can't remember the cross street, by where the... Uh, Music City mail drop box was. and Anyway, it's a big church on the right, 
uh, down on 16th. So it was right on Music Row. I don't know why I had... Oh, I, I had made uh, a whole bunch of pictures. Uh, not a whole bunch of them, but I had found a photo back when I managed him that I really loved. And I had just run a whole batch to use for promo when I got dumped. So for whatever reason, I still had them. And it's this really great shot of him. It looks like, I think I'll show you one uh, later on, but uh, I had all this, this huge stack of them. So I just went and put one in every seat at the, at the church. Uh, I can't, I think I got up and spoke. I know Steve Earl did. And of course, Guy did and several others, but it was, they probably had four or 500 people. And then I think they've had several in Texas at memorial service kind of things. They still do a show every January 2nd or January 1st, I guess, in Galveston at the revived old quarter. Well, I appreciate you yeah. taking the time to share some stories with me. Well, shoot, thank you much for taking the trouble to come over here and pull them out of me. Well, thanks again. I yeah, appreciate you. thank you. I'd like to thank everybody for listening in, and I'd like to thank John for inviting me into his home and sharing so many stories and being so generous. If you'd like to help support this show, just go to otisgibbs.com and you can pick up a CD, a t-shirt, you can download any record I've ever made, you can buy one of my photographic prints, you can buy one of Amy's records, you can buy one of Amy's children's books, but anything that you buy, we'll mail from our living room to yours and we'll even put in a little thank you note. If you'd like to help out but you're a little short on cash, just go to iTunes and leave us a five-star review. Leave a comment, subscribe while you're there, and you'll get a brand new episode free every Wednesday. But if you enjoy this show, or you enjoy my music, or you enjoy Amy's music, please take the time to tell a friend and help us spread the word. And if you'd like to send us a message, we'd love to hear from you. Just send it to info at otisgibbs.com. I'm Otis Gibbs. Thanks for giving a damn.